Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works, or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. I recently posted a special Patreon episode where Elizabeth Barnhill and I discuss nonfiction and fiction pairings, nonfiction and fiction books that can be read together to enhance the reading experience of both books. I hope you'll check it out. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nathaniel Philbrick about Travels with George. Nathaniel was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he developed an early interest in American literature and competitive sailing. After attending Brown University, where he was an all-American sailor, he received a master's in English at Duke University, then worked at Sailing World magazine before moving to Nantucket Island, where he wrote his first work of history, Away Offshore, published in 1994. He still lives in Nantucket with his wife, Melissa, and his dog, Dora, both of whom are featured in Travels with George. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, I am really excited to tell you about my latest sponsor, the Young Center, here in Houston. The Young Center is delighted to present author and producer Delia Efron on October 5th at their 2021 Fall Benefit, Who's in Your Inbox? Delia Efron talks about life, change, and the relationships that matter. You know Delia's work. With her sister Nora, she co-wrote You've Got Mail and co-produced Sleepless in Seattle. Delia's newest book, coming out in April, is Left on Fifth, A Second Chance at Life. In it, she describes her story of falling in love after the death of her husband and sister, being diagnosed with cancer, and living through it all with humor and grace. To register, go to younghouston.org and click on Delia Efron. I've included a link in the show notes. You will get $10 off your ticket when you write thoughts from a page in the notes. I am personally planning to attend online, and I hope to see you there as well. Welcome, Nathaniel. How are you today? I'm doing great. Great to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. I absolutely loved Travels with George, and I can't wait to talk about it. Well, great. That's really good to hear. When I am interviewing authors, I usually ask them to give me a quick synopsis of the book for those that haven't read it yet. Would you like to do that? Yeah, sure. This is a book about the travels Washington embarked upon during the first two years of his presidency when he was inaugurated president in 1789. He went on four different tours, two longest being up to New England, which took him all the way up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and his southern tour, which was the longest, uh, took him all the way down to Savannah, Georgia. Well, after, as I was finishing up my third book about the American Revolution, I decided, what if I followed Washington's travels? John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie is one of my favorite books of all time. My wife, Melissa, had just retired. We had a new puppy named Dora. 
a Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, what if we did our John Steinbeck imitation and followed Washington's travels across this country? And so the Travels with George tells not only the story of Washington's travels uh, in the 18th century, but our travels uh, in the 21st. And I'm assuming when you set out to do this, you plan to write about it afterwards? Yes, uh, this was uh, I. Uh, this was the plan. I wanted to be a different kind of book. Uh, you know, the, after writing, spending ten years writing, you know, heavily researched books about the revolution, in which I was either in the archives or in my office. I really wanted to get out on the road, talk to people, see the country I'd been writing about for all this time, and and you know, just and have some fun with it because I think historians have a tendency to take themselves way too seriously. And with this book, I, I really wanted to have a, a good time, as well as go to some of the darker parts of, of our past, because that's the only way you can really look the past full in the face. You talk about this a little bit in your book, but there's a lot of relevance today to what he was going through then. And I think that's so fascinating. And I guess I would not have really thought about it till I was reading your book. Right. You know, I think we have a tendency to Think of the past, oh, as a more placid time when they knew what they were doing, a simpler time. That's not the case. When Washington became president uh, in 1789, America was already divided politically. The Constitution was a very controversial thing. It divided the country into two, two groups that sound eerily familiar. The Federalists, who believed in a strong federal government that the Constitution had created, and the Anti-Federalists, who believed the states should retain the power they had had under the Articles of Confederation before the Constitution, and really distrusted uh, a strong federal government with the taxing power of of a King George, for example. And so uh, Washington needed to do something to bridge this political divide. When he became president, uh, there were 13 states, two of them, Rhode Island and North Carolina, had not yet ratified the Constitution. Not everyone was on the same page. And so uh, Washington was dealing with a time that is a lot more, a lot of similarities with where we are today. And so I was really hoping that this would give us an interesting historical perspective on our own politically partisan era. Until I read your book, I didn't even realize that Rhode Island or North Carolina had not ratified the Constitution when he took office. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, Rhode Island, Rhode Islanders were the first to declare their independence, and they were the last to come into the fold of the United States of America. You know, what's it's interesting is when they finally did come in, they were the last to come in, Washington almost immediately jumps on a schooner, sails from the temporary capital of New York to Newport and Providence. You know, today, a political pundits might have perceived Rhode Island as enemy territory. He saw it as a, ch- a chance to, to really change minds, and he did. But, you know, Rhode Islanders were completely blown away by the fact that, you know, Washington welcomed them with open arms. And in the process, Washington succeeded in turning the state into some of his uh, biggest fans. I loved that. And I felt like a lot of politicians today could read that and maybe learn a lot from it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Washington was one of these people who believed in compromise. He didn't have to be right all the time. He just wanted to make things work. The concept, he wanted an active federal government that would do things for the good of the people. He had spent eight years as commander in chief of the Continental Army seeing the dangers of a totally dysfunctional federal government where nothing, there was just no, not enough strength in the government to to do anything, really. 
and uh, and so he he saw the Constitution as a way to to create a country that would tr- a, a national government that would transcend the ego of any one person, but create a, a government of laws. And so, you know, this was a new concept for people. And Washington did his best to sell it when he went on these tours of the country. Well, and I love that he had enough sense to go out on these tours and understand that if he was connecting with people, he probably would win them over, which is exactly what happened. Right. I mean, Washington was probably the most popular man in the world at this point. I mean, he had star power like, uh, you know, we've never really seen in our lifetime. And and so he he decided he could use that popularity to help create a sense of national pride and unity. And you know, he he was not above uh, resorting to theatrics. Uh, when uh, he would come to the border of a town, he would step out of his horse-drawn carriage, dressed in his uh, general's uniform, mount his great big white horse, and ride down the main thoroughfare to tremendous acclaim. This was, you know, before the, the in, today, and we have a modern day political rally with throbbing rock music and huge screens and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Washington was doing it in the 18th century, you know, by getting on that horse and creating a, you know, using his star power to inspire people. And it's amazing when you look at the newspaper coverage of his, his, that first trip to New England, there's the Salem Gazette that says, you know, what Washington was able to, uh, everyone who attended, no matter if they were anti-federalist or federalist, now were in favor of Washington and his government. And so, you know, this is what he, he had that ability to say, wait, I'm not, shouldn't just isolate myself in the office. I need to get out there, see the people and sell the fact that we are now United States of America. Well, and that makes me think of another thing that I think is happening today a lot. The idea that we're online and people are bickering back and forth with people they don't know. It's fairly anonymous. I mean, your name's attached to it, but you don't really know the people you're bickering with. And I think his concept of actually getting out amongst the people, introducing himself, speaking, where people then feel like they know him personally makes such a big difference over all these just kind of back and forths on Twitter or Facebook or wherever it is. Yeah. You know, the scale of the country was so different then. You know, there's so many fewer people. And um, and so, you know, this is before mass media, b- before Facebook and Instagram, before you could get on TV and speak to the nation if you were the president. He had to go there and see the people. And uh, it took a tremendous amount of time. The first tour of New England took a month. The tour of the South would take three months. And, you know, we now laughingly refer to Washington slept here, you know, as kind of a historical joke. But, you know, each place he stayed in was just one more example of how Washington had to work tremendously hard by physically going to these places and showing that, you know, I am one of you. I might be president of the United States. I might be the guy who won the American Revolution, but I am a person uh, just like you. You know, we are all American citizens. I agree. And I just think that personal connection makes a big difference then or now. But what about your research? You just raised actually one of my questions for you. Washington slept here. How did you go about making sure some of these things actually happen? There are so many myths surrounding Washington. And you talk a little bit about the only a man stories and the Washington slept here. But how was it kind of weeding through all of the research to make sure the things you wanted to talk about actually happened? Right. Well, it's it's a really good point. I mean, First thing I did, even before we departed, 
uh, was I made a list of all the towns he visited and then sent out uh, and reached out to the historical societies and libraries of each of their towns. Because I, I, ha- I had Washington's diary, so we knew we had his perspective. I wanted to know how his visits were remembered by the people in each town he visited. And so this, all this information started coming in. And a lot, all, a lot of it was tradition, tr- you know, traditions of, of people who had you know, uh, remembered seeing Washington uh, late in life. Those kinds of things, which you know, are not always to be entirely trusted, and so I uh, began to um, pull these together. And in many instances, the local historians agreed to show us around town and 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 that kind of thing. And and what was fun was seeing these traditions and realizing that some of them were popular in the 19th century because they appealed to the sensibility of of that time, but really had very little foundation in what had actually transpired in the late 18th century. The example of the Washington Elm, just about every New England town, it seemed, that Washington visited has an elm that Washington paused in, you know, his journey in the heat of the day, you know, under the blessed shade of this elm, refreshed himself, gazed on the lovely town before him and moved on. And, And these huge elms were there in the late 19th century. The problem with these traditions is when Washington was there, he came through New England in October and November. There were no leaves on the trees. It was cold. He was, and he was moving as quickly as he could. He had so many different places to go. He wasn't pausing. If he had paused under every elm, I don't <laughs> think he would have, he'd still be doing it. It would have taken him away longer than it took him to get through New England. Right, right. And, and, you know, and these trees that were huge, leafy monsters in the 19th century were mere saplings in 1789. And so, you know, this was a tradition that appealed uh, wonderfully to the sensibilities of people in 1888, but really had no foundation in fact. And so uh, it was in some instances, uh, you know, I I, I won't say I I got the locals angry with me, but just said, you know, how can this be? Uh, You know, in one instance, we were in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, there is a tradition that when Washington went on a Southern tour, he had a dog with him, a greyhound uh, named Cornwallis for, you know, his, his great opponent, British general in, in the, the American Revolution. And according to this tradition, it was, this was in the Savannah Chronicle. I mean, excuse me, the, the um, Augusta Chronicle. It wasn't Savannah. It was Augusta Inland. Augusta Chronicle in the late uh, 19th century, there was an article about how when they were doing road work, they uncovered a brick crypt of a, with a dog skeleton inside, and on it was an inscription saying how when, Corn, when Washington came to Augusta, Cornwallis's dog upped and died, uh, and apparently exhausted by the pace of the tour, and, and Washington wept tears. Because of this article, there has always been the story that Washington traveled in the South with his dog. Well, I was there with uh, a, a, a columnist for the, the today's Augusta Chronicle, who said, and I said, you know, what about this story? I said, Nat, did you look at the date of this article? And I said, well, it's, it was in the late 18th century. He said, no, did you look at what month? And, uh, and, I, and I said, no, what? He said, it was April 1st. It was an April Fool's joke. We've never found where uh, this, this brick crypt, uh, where they said the construction was happening, was nowhere near where Washington would have been 
in you know in the, the 1700s you know it's it's all made up and so um this was one of those oh man it was such a great story we were there with our dog wouldn't it have been great if washington had his dog with him no it didn't happen and so you know this is a, the great thing about oral traditions often they reveal things that were not necessarily recorded but you have to be careful because in some instances they are made from from fantasy I love that, that some writers, April Fool's joke has lived on, and now people, some people believe that actually happened. That's kind of a great story. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, there's histories of Washington that uh, record this very dutifully. And uh, no, didn't happen. Well, on that note, was there something that you learned from your journey that surprised you? Yeah. Well, you know, I think all of us have a, a vision of Washington as staid and remote. You know, that, that guy on the $1 bill sort of glaring at us. Not a backslapper, you know, a, a, a great general statesman, but, uh, but a marble man. Well, one of the things we were very surprised at was all the, the traditions and, and, and actually verified stories that of, of Washington, the traveler, the human being. You know, at one point he's in Oyster Bay, New York, where, um, uh, the, an eight-year-old girl named Sarah was at her gate uh, of her house watching, you know, looking out, and she saw George Washington riding by on his horse with his entourage. Uh, she would never forget it. She would record this anecdote in her when she was in her 90s, uh, living in Greenwich Village. And across the street from her house, they were building a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, Sarah recounted how Washington got down from his horse. Remember, Washington was a tall man. He was six foot, six foot, four inches tall, uh, which was really big for, for uh, the 18th century. And he volunteered to help the workmen get the, one of the rafters uh, up onto the roof. You know, he lifted it up with them. And, you know, this is not the Washington, you know, uh, staring at us from the $1 bill. This is Washington out there having some fun, uh, hobnobbing with the people, seeing life through their eyes as he makes his way across this country. I loved that story. And I love some of the other ones like that, that you talk about that are, make him a lot more human, I think. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, I always love to ask about covers. That's kind of one of my favorite things to talk about and look at. And I think you have one of the best covers I have seen in a long time. Every time I look at it, it makes me smile. Can you tell me a little bit about how the cover came about? Yeah, well, you know, it was, it was the art director's uh, brilliant uh, decision. Uh, typically, uh, when we um, are looking for a cover, th they come up with several versions, and they did in this instance. You know, a lot of them were just a picture of Washington with some fancy type, that kind of stuff. And then, that, you know, they were presented with this one of, of Washington peering into the rearview mirror, you know, Washington in the back seat uh, as, as a car drives the highways of America. And I immediately said, that's it. And uh, the response was, well, no, this is, this is a little out there, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic and, you know, your readers are straight history. I said, no, this is, a whole, this, is, this is the book right here. It was as if when Melissa and I and Dora were driving the country, it often felt as if Washington was in the backseat watching us. You've got to go with this. And so it became the cover. And it's my favorite of all the covers I've ever had. Uh, just like you, it, I just smile when I look at it. 
it really does reflect what it was like. Melissa kept a copy of Washington's diary, uh, you know, opened on her lap. So, you know, she would read from it when we'd pull into a town and he had something to say about it. And so it really, truly did feel as if Washington was in the back seat watching us as we made our cross, way across the country. Well, I love that. And it makes it an even better cover. But like I said, it just makes me happy every time I look at it. And I think it's a fabulous, fabulous cover. Great. Uh, it's, it's one for the ages from my standpoint. Absolutely. Well, are you working on anything at the present? Yeah. Well, um, I, I um, have turned one of my favorite researching adventures while writing a book was for The, the Last Stand, which is about the Battle of Little Bighorn. I loved going to the West. I'm, I'm associated often as a New England writer with a maritime interest, but the uh, West was something I wanted to explore and I wanted to get back. And so my next project will be the California Gold Rush. Uh, I um, already gone on a research trip with my wife, Melissa, following the, the overland trail from St. Joseph, Missouri, all the way to Sacramento, California. There, you know, they, people went by sea around Cape Horn. There, you could also take a steamship to the Isthmus of Panama and then to another steamship and then up the coast. But I'm most interested in you know, the phenomenon of California. I want to explore the native side, the Asian side, the African-American side, the Anglo-American side. It was a really international event, and uh, it changed the country. You know, up until that point, it was, you know, people were expected to pretty much live the life of their parents on the farm. After this, people began to aspire, you know, get rich quick became the, the modus operandi of this country. And so I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that for my next book. Is it wild to kind of turn your attention away from George Washington and, and focus on something else? Yeah, well, you know, this was my valedictory. You know, this was, I was, I've never saw myself becoming so enamored of, with Washington. I just didn't see it coming. But with this book, I feel like, you know, I've, I've saw him through the revolution. I've seen him through his presidency. Uh, it's time for me to move on. <laughs> And so, you know, it is with regret. I mean, Melissa and I look back with nostalgic longing to, you know, our drive around the country, particularly with COVID making travel a little more dicey than it was back in those those innocent days before the pandemic. You know, now I'm I'm ready to head west, and and each one of my books is I try to change it up. I, I in some way or another, whether it's a narrative technique or the geography of where I'm going. This book was fun because it was, you know, two narratives. There was Washington and there was our journey. And it was a really fun narrative challenge. With this book, there's going to be a cast of, a lot, you know, a lot of characters, a lot of a geographic space to, to, to move them across. It's going to be a whole different challenge, and I'm looking forward to it. That sounds very interesting. And I also think relevant because California is really experiencing a lot of change these days. And, you know, things are so different with the climate and the drought and wildfires. So it'll be interesting, kind of the beginning of California and then compared to what's happening now. Right. And you know what? And you can see so many of the seeds of where California is now being laid with the gold rush, where, you know, it was, there was no sense of environmental, <laughs> you know, concerns with this gold rush. It was all about tearing up the land getting at the gold, whether it was panning for gold or using 
fire basically fire hoses to wash away the sides of mountains to get at the you know the ore uh, it was ecological havoc that was wreaked back then and now to see where California is today I think this is going to be kind of like with travels with George where a lot of the issues that were bubbling to the surface in the 19th century are coming into even more bold relief today. I agree completely. That will be really interesting. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read lately that you really liked? Oh, what, what, what? Uh, let's see. I just read a great biography of the first years of Bob Dylan's career. I think the two sides of Bob Dylan, I think it is. I, when I read for fun, I, I don't read history. You know, it's, I, that's what I do for my job. You know, I read novels. I'm, I'm now reading George Eliot's Adam Bede. And uh, I love Victorian novels, but I also like music, uh, contemporary music. And so, um, you know, that, those are the kinds of things where I, I just go to a different place uh, and enjoy uh, with the novels, you know, the, the use of language. And when it comes to writing about music, how the writer uh, plays, balances biography with, with a musical analysis. I, I really enjoy that. So, so that's what I've been reading. I love Bob Dylan, so I'm going to have to check that one out. Yeah, it's great. Well, Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking about Travels with George. Well, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access some fabulous bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group and Young Center Houston for sponsoring this episode. I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.